Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. This week, Peter, I thought it would be a good idea to discuss currencies, the dollar in particular, and also what's been happening in Euroland, where there have been some important political developments. Um, and I thought I'd start to introduce this subject by uh, mentioning that every month there is a monthly survey of professional investors around the world, run by Bank of America. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when this survey actually started, which was in the 1980s. So there's been a long and continuous history of taking the temperature, if you like, of what investors are thinking. Uh, And it's often quite a useful way to see uh, what uh, professional investors on average are thinking. And what the last survey told us this week was, among other things, first of all, that most professional investors are still quite gloomy about the outlook from here. Uh, They're pessimistic. They don't expect uh, a quick or sharp recovery in the uh, global economy because of the pandemic. And they also, as it happens, are still quite uh, of the view that the dollar is overvalued. And that's the subject we want to talk about today. Uh, You might want to make a brief comment on where you think you are in relation to professional investors generally in in terms of the the financial markets and the pandemic. Uh, But in particular, I do want to go on and and ask you to give your view on where we are in the dollar and why that matters so much in the current climate. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. (laughs) I'm very glad that you want to discuss this. It's another way of saying what is the most crowded trade and why. And personally, I've always been quite surprised that people who find themselves in the most crowded trade persist in remaining in that crowded trade, despite the knowledge that it is the most crowded trade. And I put that down to safety in numbers, but it is a false sense of security because in the end, the most crowded trade meets resistance and uh, goes the other way. And that's when people start losing money. I think the most crowded trade today is still the overvalued US dollar. And it's perceived as the ultimate safe haven whether that's right or wrong is another discussion, but that's the perception. And so it is, it is what it means is that American investors, they repatriate their foreign investments, which is a relatively understandable human trait. When there is trouble around the world, you, you, you sell your, your foreign assets and you get your money back. And the reason that the dollar is so strong is because there is a lack of liquidity internationally of dollars. You can see that by looking at the accounts that are held with the Federal Reserve in the name of non-US central banks. And when these balances fall fall to low levels, it means that there are not enough dollars sloshing around outside the US. And that's where we are at the moment. The reason why it's important that the dollar comes down is, of course, because the amount of 
dollar-denominated debt owed by especially emerging markets, either as countries or as corporates inside some of these emerging markets, is very high. So if the dollar goes up, the cost of servicing those debts goes up. And if the dollar goes down, the cost of servicing goes down. What the Federal Reserve did recently is that they introduced so-called swap lines, which are essentially lines of credit, which were given to a whole lot of emerging markets, central banks, but not all of them, many of them, but not all of them. The problem is that the counter prevailing forces are still such that the dollar is stubbornly high. I think that as soon as the risk off mentality maybe morphs into more of a risk on mentality, which we'll talk about in a minute, we should see the dollar uh, topping and then coming down. But doing dollar, doing currency forecasts is a mug's game. I never do it, and I, and I don't think I ever will. But since you asked me, and since we're talking about crowded trades, I think that's where the most crowded trade is. And I think that what must happen will happen. Right. Well, that's uh, very honest of you, Peter, to put it that way. I'm in the luxurious position here of being able to say that I don't attempt to forecast currencies either. It's not my professional obligation to do so, thank goodness. Uh, but I suppose I could put the argument to you that uh, I went back and looked at what the dollar has done over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And if you look at the uh, the trade weighted index, you know, which measures the value of the dollar against weighted by the amount of trade it does with different countries. Uh, we go back to 2000, and the dollar is still higher then than it is today. And what we've seen in the last 20 years is basically a bit of a V-shaped performance by the by the dollar. It's went down a lot from uh, 2000 till the financial crash, uh, and now it's gone up a lot ever since there. So obviously, something has happened between those two uh, to those two periods. Uh, and I guess it has a lot to do with, in fact, the consequences of the financial crisis, to do with risk appetite, uh, and also to do with real interest rates, which have been come down, uh, and, uh, and, and, and interest rates generally have come down a lot. So my feeling, looking back at the kind of long-term trends in currencies, is that they do always tend to persist a bit longer than people expect. And that's why people continue to say that, you know, the dollar is a crowded, most crowded trade as they did in 2015 and 2017. But these trends always go on longer than people expect. And it's only when you know, everybody is convinced that actually the, the thing has to go on uh, rising that actually things start to change. So I wonder whether it will happen soon. I mean, I wonder whether there's going to be a prevailing um, catalyst that will make for this kind of change. And I would have thought that possibly one of those is if there is a material change in, as you say, risk appetite and interest rate outlook. But as I recall, I mean, you're not particularly confident uh, that uh, interest rates are going to rise significantly in the near term anyway. So does that not have a bearing on how the, how the dollar might perform? It has a bearing on how the dollar might perform. We also noticed this week the nascent talks about negative interest rates in the US and how the chairman of the Federal Reserve is resisting that. You mentioned the 1980s. There were two very important features in the 1980s. One was called the Louvre Accord, and the other was called the Plaza Accord. 
And that was, as you remember, a time when the various international agencies got together and decided to weaken the dollar in that particular case. And so they did it through intervening in the foreign exchange markets. That's the sort of thing that doesn't happen anymore today and has presumably to do with the firm independence of the, of the central banks. And therefore, you could argue that this whole story about negative interest rates is a hidden way of performing competitive devaluation. You could argue that. There is some mystery there going on. Um, in addition to that, don't forget the very important event, which is that the renminbi yuan is a, is a currency that is gaining in importance today. Of course, it goes hand in hand with what the Chinese are doing, how they want to build up a renminbi bond market, how they are very aggressive in their Belt and Road Initiative, and all that. So the whole parameters of the currency markets today compared with the 1980s have changed. And of course, don't forget that in the 1980s, you didn't have the euro yet. And the euro is the second most important international reserve currency today. So I think to conclude, Jonathan, you're right. It needs a different risk mentality. It, you need to see the markets go up. The bond markets stabilize. You need to see retail activity rise, purchasing manager indices rise, and so on and so forth. Of course, in the absence of inflation rates, and you need therefore to conclude that interest rates need and will stay lower for longer. And that will change the risk mentality and those who are stuck in crowded trades. Before we move on to talk about the euro, where, which I think is a very interesting topic, let me just ask you one uh, further aspect about this. I mean, one of the most, the best performing uh, asset this year uh, of the main uh, types of asset class, if you like, has been gold, which is up, I think, about 15% year to date. And gold, of course, is priced in dollars. And a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of people who have very strange and wondrous ideas about gold and what, what its performance signifies. Um, but that's relevant, is it not? How would you interpret the, con uh, the performance of gold this year in the context of what you've just been talking about? Before I answer your question directly, I think you're quite right to say that it's very unusual that the gold price goes up and that the dollar's external value remains stubbornly high. We all know that for a typical Swiss investor, buying gold was always a non-event. When the gold price went up, the dollar went down and vice versa. Um, but I think to answer your question about gold, I've thought about that quite a lot. And in the end, I decided to stop thinking about it because gold is there to protect the power of your... Gold is there to protect your purchasing power. And whether your purchasing power is eroded through inflation, in other words, through the coupon of your bonds, let's say, or whether your purchasing power is eroded by deflation, which gnaws away at the capital that you're investing and produces negative interest rates, I think you need to be an economist, or we need to be two economists, to have a high-level discussion about what that really means. 
as a practitioner, I've noticed the gold price going up because people are scared. They lose money in the bond market. And so by instinct, they buy more gold. And they come up with all the same arguments that gold bulls always have, that every ounce of gold that was ever minted still exists, and that there's a perennial demand for gold from the Indians as they get bigger and richer, and so on and so forth. To me, it's quite simply protection against an erosion of purchasing power. And I would perhaps add to that that it's also, uh, you can, it's quite highly correlated to the level and the direction of real interest rates. In other words, interest rates are after taking account of inflation. So it may be giving us some kind of signal there. If indeed the participants in that market are uh, more rational, perhaps, or better able to judge the future than those in other markets, it's not necessarily clear to me that that is the case. But let's move on to the euro then, because as you say, the euro has become the second most important currency in the world. And of course, at the same time, since the financial crisis, we have been beset by a series of uh, crises, political crises and economic crises in the eurozone, those countries that do have uh, the euro as their currency. Now, there is long been a debate about how what is the best way for the European governments to sort out the problem of the euro uh, and how to make it a better, uh, to make financial conditions in the, uh, and economic conditions in the euro, eurozone uh, more stable. There's been an important development in the last few days, uh, which I approach with a rather healthy degree of scepticism, I have to say, as a perennial um, uh, not an extreme Eurosceptic, but someone who's observed the Eurozone for some time and, and, and often marvel at how they manage to spin out their, their kind of political discussions into seemingly endless sessions of jaw-jaw. Uh, but anyway, I, there has been this significant announcement uh, about a, the latest agreement between the French, the Germans, and indeed the Eurozone. And you're the man to tell us what it all means and whether it's going to last, whether it has any real significance. Uh, and what its effects will be. I'm very glad you bring that up because, as you know, I am a Central European and I'm, I'm very interested, indeed fascinated, by how the ever closer union is working and how those who are on the periphery of Europe, and of course that doesn't include the UK anymore because the UK has left the European Union, but how the, the periphery is always marvelling and predicting that it'll all fall apart. Uh, the British uh, predicted that the euro would not happen. When it did happen, they predicted that it would not last. And as it is lasting, they're predicting that it will not work. But now we are 20 years later, and it has lasted, and it is working more or less. And the Economic and Monetary Union is, of course, it's an ongoing moving feast. And uh, so they haven't got anywhere near uh, the end of the Economic and Monetary Union. But what happened this week was really quite spectacular, because before what happened this week, there was the mentality of the German government and a few other governments around the German government, and in particular Mrs. Angela Merkel, who were adamant against the European Union borrowing money as a bloc or as one agent, because she didn't want to see a transfer 
what they called a fiscal union, where the richer countries from so-called the northern countries would pay for or bail out the less responsible countries in the south, particularly the Mediterranean ones, as well as Portugal. And then suddenly, something very important changed this week, and that was the constitutional, the German constitutional court, who issued a ruling that what the European Central Bank was doing in their quantitative easing programs was not entirely legal. Now, we don't want to go into that too much because it's a very technical argument. But what it meant was that Mrs. Merkel suddenly realized that if the German court could succeed in curtailing the monetary policy activities of the central bank, then it would be left to the fiscal policies to bail out Europe from this coronavirus crisis. And she wasn't sure that there would have been enough political will for that to happen. And if you have a vacuum in the monetary policies, thanks to the court, and you have a vacuum in the fiscal policies, thanks to the intransigence of the mentality of fiscal transfers, then you really have a danger of centri centrifugal forces pulling the European Union apart. So she did a 360-degree turn together with Macron, and they came out and suggested this thing called the Recovery Fund, which is quite big, it's 500 billion, and at its most basic, it means that the European Commission will borrow money through issuing a bond, and that that bond will be used, those monies will be used where they are needed most, irrespective of the country's size, so they won't be deployed according to the weighting by population or by country size, but according to needs. And then it will be repaid in due course through the EU budget, firstly. But secondly, and this is absolutely crucial, it looks as if, and this is what Mrs. Merkel and Mr. Macron want, the money raised through these bonds will be deployed as grants and not as loans. In other words, they're grants, which means they never need to be paid back. The reason why you encounter what are now called the resistance from the frugal four, were four countries, um, Austria, Sweden, Denmark, and Holland, who are against the idea of grants and would prefer loans, is because if you give money to a profligate country and not ask them to repay it, then it comes to the same thing as a fiscal union and wouldn't be uh, looked at very well uh, by the population. So that's the last bit of resistance, this grants versus loans. But it is an extremely important moment for the European Union. Some have called it a Hamiltonian moment. Some have said, yes, but it's not really a Hamiltonian moment. Never mind, it's a step forward uh, to not only solving the COVID problem and getting the economy back on track, but it is also a step closer towards ever closer union with or without the British. And that's the reason why the stock markets have been relatively strong in the last few days. That's the reason.
Right. Well, okay. So I'm going to stick to my mild skepticism here and say that this also, you could interpret what's happened in a slightly, uh, perhaps less positive way. It is obviously something new and another step forward, if you like, in that direction. But uh, we've seen many of these things before in the case of the Eurozone, and we have, uh, you know, grand sounding uh, announcements are always made involving large numbers, uh, or apparently large numbers, and then the reality turns out to be rather different, and the political fracturing continues. I mean, the underlying problem, of course, one can't totally, I don't think, dismiss the uh, the views of the German Constitutional Court in the sense that, as you say, they reflect political uh, realities as well. In other words, that what what I think the German Court is trying to say is, uh, but give me if I got this wrong, is that uh, going down the route which you've described and moving towards ever closer political union uh, has to be something which is uh, within the powers of the of, of the way that the uh, EU is set up. And without democratic consent, without the German, you know, without the German government, without a new treaty between the governments to actually allow all this to happen, that we're basically uh, fudging along, trying to fudge along towards a, an outcome without actually being totally honest and transparent about what is being done. Uh, and I wonder whether the political reality of this new latest fudge uh, will turn out to be also very difficult, given that Mrs. Merkel herself is not going to be around for much longer. Uh, and she will be obviously succeeded by someone who may or may not uh, find it easier uh, to, 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 to get through these kind of compromises that she's been managed to do for a long time now. I don't know how you'd react to that. By saying that there's a difference between a compromise and a fudge. And of course, in the past, in the past, the European Union has been good at fudging things. But fudging things has rarely caused a step to be taken backwards. It just means that the forward step is slightly slower through a fudge. But this is more than a, this is, this is not a fudge. This is a very important compromise because, you know, as I said earlier, she was afraid that a vacuum would be created through the Constitutional Court. All the Constitutional Court has actually said is that the European Central Bank overstepped its mandate, its competence level, and went in Latin words, ultra vires, which means beyond what is permitted to do, by being um, sloppy about the proportionality of their quantitative easing. In other words, they didn't do it in the proportions that they should have done, and they didn't do enough homework before simply splashing out the money, which, of course, the, the ECB denies entirely. So I think that this is a step forward. Uh, obviously, we don't know how it's going to end because the frugal four might still resist this. And don't forget that it would need unanimous approval. So we haven't quite seen it yet, the end of this yet. But this, the financial markets have given the thumbs up to this. And usually the financial markets are quite right in what they predict. So I don't know, the jury is still out, Jonathan, but I think this is a very important game changer, which will be enshrined, presumably, in new treaties going forward. So maybe Mrs. Merkel won't be around for much longer, but if you look at her potential successors, um, one feels relatively positive. 
Well, that'll be very interesting to see. I mean, I guess the underlying issue there is one about accountability and uh, both political accountability and institutional accountability. Um, you know, if there isn't a German constitutional court to keep an eye on what the uh, ECB is doing, uh, whether or not they're right or not in their criticisms, that's an important point. Uh, but let's see if it is turn out to be that. I mean, because one hopes so in one sense, isn't that the, you know, I, I don't know whether you would agree with this, but I mean, the the price of getting the Eurozone and sustaining the Eurozone has been quite high in terms of the uh, disruption and dislocation it's caused in some of the countries with the, uh, shall we say, weaker currencies, or would have had the weaker currencies if they still had their national currencies. Uh, there's been very high unemployment and there have been very slow level, relatively low levels of economic growth and so on. Um, so they better get it right. If they're going to do it, they better get it right, because otherwise the, all that sacrifice will have been, uh, shall we say, uh, potentially in vain. Yes, don't forget, of course, that the German Constitutional Court is not the final instance in all this. And in fact, the final instance is the European Court of Justice, who have also ruled that, or who have ruled that what the ECB is doing is not illegal. That's the first thing to bear in mind. So you've got a lower court trying to override an, a higher court and that i'm not a lawyer and you know what they say um financial people are legally illiterate and lawyers are financially illiterate which i think is very unfair but the, the, the fact is that you you've got to expect that the european central bank will cock a snook at the german constitutional court will continue um as it wants to do and as it thinks it must do and if the Bundesbank is prohibited by the German Constitutional Court from participating in QE, then the ECB will ask another bank, like the Austrian National Bank, to do it instead. So not, there's not going to be any change in monetary policy because of the German Constitutional Court's verdict. Good. Well, we'll see how this all pans out. That's been a very interesting perspective to hear. We'll see whether the dollar uh, does do as uh, you think it must eventually. Uh, start to come down in value and whether the uh, how the euro performs over the over the same period uh, as you say is such an important currency in the world i think that's all we've got time for this week but no doubt we were returning to these important subjects of the dollar monetary policy negative interest rates and the obviously ongoing impact of the pandemic so peter thank you very much another stimulating conversation see you next week thank you jonathan see you next week you have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah Weekly Podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silent. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.